It's always a little exciting, isn't it? A handout, <laughs> something to look at. Um, so there is a handout for this evening's talk. If you don't have one, I think there are still some more at the entrance to the hall on this side. And just know you don't even need to look at it to hear this talk. It's just a support if you find it helpful. There are many teachings that we could consider essential to understand as we deepen in our practice of the Buddha way, the Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics, things we've talked about a lot. But the one that I'm going to teach on tonight, Dependent Origination, the Buddha actually considered his most profound, most central, and most unique, uh, that he actually created this um, way of looking at our experience. And what it is, is um, a description of how we get caught in suffering again and again and again. And inherent in that is also how we come out of suffering, how we break that cycle. He considered it so central that the Buddha said, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma, and one who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. I really saw them as so interwoven. If you remember in one of Guy's earlier talks, actually I think a couple of times, he mentioned this teaching called the Sutta on Totality about the six sense spaces where the Buddha said, you know, I will teach you the totality of everything. You know, and just has this simple, ex you know, you think it's going to be some amazing philosophical treatise and it's just this very simple description of our experience with the six sense spaces. Well, here he's saying, I will teach you the totality of everything that ever came into being and how it did that and how it passes away through these 12 links, the 12 steps of dependent origination. So it's quite an amazing conceptual feat that he came up with. When he first um, envisioned it, when he first came to this understanding, he realized that um, it would be difficult to teach, that he didn't know if people would understand. He said, monks, this thought arose in me thus. This truth which I have realized is profound, difficult to see, abstruse, calming, subtle, not attainable through mere sophisticated logic. But beings revel in attachment, take pleasure in attachment, and delight in attachment. For beings who thus revel, take pleasure and delight in attachment. This is an extremely difficult thing to see. That is, the law of conditionality, the principle of dependent origination. Moreover, this also is an extremely difficult thing to see, the calming of all conditioning, the casting off of all clinging, the abandoning of desire, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. If I were to give this teaching and my words were not understood, that would simply make for weariness and difficulty. So I might feel a little bit the same after this talk tonight, but uh, at least I have the Buddha's wisdom to rely on. So he did begin to teach teach dependent origination and teach all these other um, amazing understandings that he gained during his enlightenment and from his own wisdom. But at one point he was uh, living, as it says here, in the, uh, living among the Kurus in the town of Kuru Sadama. 
and the Venerable Ananda approached the Buddha. And you probably know a little bit by now the stories of the Buddha's life and his main disciples. Ananda was his main attendant for the last many years of his life. But the poor guy is often a little bit of a fall guy. He's very sincere, but doesn't sometimes quite get it. Um, and here's Ananda approaching the Buddha and saying, it's amazing, Lord, how astounding, how deep this dependent co-arising is, how deep its appearance. And yet to me, it seems as clear as clear can be. Now, you know he's setting himself up for a fall. The Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. Deep is dependent origination and deep is its appearance. It is because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma that this generation is like a tangled skein, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go beyond rebirth, beyond the, beyond the planes of deprivation, woe, and bad destinations. So it's not easy to understand. So don't expect to do it tonight uh, if you haven't heard this teaching before, and even if you have. But I really want to make it simple tonight. I've, uh, looking at it the way it's helped me to understand it and not go into some of the more complicated aspects of it. Because what really is happening in its essence is the law of cause and effect. Just as simple as that. Again, the Buddha says, when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. That's the basic principle at work here, this conditioned arising of experience and knowing that when a certain experience arises in this form, it will impact the, the, this other experience, this other uh, condition. And it's talking about the conditionality of all phenomena, but particularly what I'm going to be talking tonight is about the human experience. And so in doing so, I'm not going to go into a detailed analysis of all the links and, and the, the pre, uh, an exposition of how, what, what's contained in each one. You can go on and read that at a later time if you wish, and that's why I put on the one side some of the references that I found helpful in looking at this sutta, because whole books have been written on dependent origination. It's such a profound teaching and such an important teaching. Um, but I'm going to stick to what is relevant for us as practitioners, and particularly where this, this understanding can lead us to more freedom in our lives and not being so caught. One of the books that I found really helpful, the first one that's listed there, just called Dependent Origination by P.A. Paiuto, it's a Thai monk, is actually available for free on the web. Uh, the whole book is, is up there online. It is, a, it is a, Dharma a Dana book, so you can get copies, but because it's a Dana book, you can't buy it in a bookstore, obviously, so they become rather hard to get. And I saw an example of that, this conditioned wheel going around and around. I looked up on Amazon, and someone is trying to sell this free book for $100 on Amazon. So the grasping is evident all, all the time. So on one side of your handout is this drawing of a rather fierce creature. Um, and it's a depiction of what is known in the Tibetan tradition as a tanka. And they're used as teaching tools. 
people often have them as decoration in their houses or restaurants or whatever, but they're actually very serious teaching tools and often quite powerful images in them and sometimes also quite beautiful. It's hard to find one of this particular tanka in uh, black and white that's a line drawing. And this one is a little coarse, but uh, it has the basic um, teaching modalities in it, so I chose to use it. Um, it's a little hard to read in some places, so I will describe what's actually being shown here. Um, it's called the Bhava Chakra Tanka, the Wheel of Life. And what you're seeing here, this fierce creature is Yama, the Lord of Death, with his skulls and his fangs and his fierce eyes and his talons. And he's holding this big disc. And what's interesting about the disc is it's actually a mirror. And so what he's doing is holding a mirror up, and this is what's being reflected this play of life and death, of uh, arisings and passings, of the conditioned nature of experience. And just to look at the diagram in the center, there are three animals, a rooster, a snake, and a pig, representing greed, aversion, and desire. And they've each got the other's tail in their mouth, so they're just chasing each other around. And there's a lot of that Symbol symbolism in this in this uh, thing. So the 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 rooster is desire, the snake is aversion, and the pig is delusion, chasing each other around and around. So you recognize those as the three kalesas. The next ring, it's in black and white, and there's beings tumbling down on the right hand side, down into suffering, down into the hell realms, and then on the left hand side, the possibility of going up to the heaven realms, up to freedom, up to happiness. Outside that, there are generally, uh, these depictions can differ a little, but generally six representations of different realms. Now, in traditional uh, Theravada cosmology, there are actually 31 realms, um, and they just distill it down to these six. I think because in these six, we can so easily see our human mind. Uh, the, we can see these realms as just aspects of the human mind, even though there's this whole cosmology of devas and brahmas and different forms of gods and hell realms, we can know these realms here and now in this human manifestation. So at 12 o'clock, it begins with the hell realm, I mean, sorry, the, the heaven realms, the deva realms, where they're playing music and dancing and flying through the air. And I, I think it must be a California heaven realm because it looks like they're swimming around in a hot tub there. <laughs> Not sure that's a very traditional depiction, but that's what it looks like. As you go around clockwise at about one or two o'clock is the realm of the jealous gods or asuras. And this is the, the uh, realm of jealousy and aversion, and pride. So again, a, a state that we can recognize in our own experience. Going down a little further around uh, three or four o'clock is the animal realm. And that symbolize, you know, it's, it's, it's um, even though, of course, there's a whole wide range of the, the uh, manifestations in the animal realm, it's, its characteristic in this depiction is a delusion, is that sense of animals as not having that enough awakened um, consciousness to come to any form of liberation. So delusional plottingness. And I'm not being uh, denigrating to animals. I think there are some very intelligent animals, but that's just the traditional um, way we can access this in our own experience, that sense of being deluded, stuck, kind of befuddled or limited in our view. 
Down around 6 o'clock is the Hell Realms. Again, there are many, many versions of Hell Realms. There are hot realms, Hell Realms, and cold Hell Realms, but luckily it's not very clear. Sometimes these are very graphic, and you, you know, it's just scenes of great suffering, of great torment. Further around is a very interesting realm, the realm of the hungry ghosts. And again, this is one that we can all recognize. In the realm of hungry ghosts, the beings all have big stomachs and pinholes for mouths. So they're always hungry, but they can never get enough. Anyone relate to that as a, an experience? And so they're always shown kind of crawling and reaching and trying to fill this emptiness that they they always experience. And then just above that is the human realm. And it's not a great depiction. It just shows some people in houses and old people and young people and someone meditating. It's just the general realm of, of humanity. What's nice about this tanka, not all of them have it, is in each one there's a Buddha teaching. And he's giving the appropriate teaching for that realm and often has different mudras, mudras and gestures. Um, he's carrying different things appropriate for the realm in which he's teaching. So that really just gives us a flavor of the, the condition of reality, what most life forms exist in. On the outer ring is where it gets interesting, where the 12 links of dependent origination are depicted. Begins at 12 o'clock with usually the image of a blind man, ignorance. This is the beginning of the cycle the beginning of the wheel. And it doesn't mean, ignorance doesn't mean that we're dumb or stupid. It just means that we don't know the truth of things, that we keep believing things to be a certain way. And as Guy said the other night, they are always other than that. Now the traditional understanding of ignorance are things like not knowing the cause of suffering and how it ends, not understanding the Four Noble Truths, not understanding karma, not understanding or recognizing the three characteristics. All of these are very traditional understandings of what delusion is. But really at the core of delusion is just this misperception about reality. It's this misunderstanding of how, what brings happiness and what causes suffering. And that's where we find ourselves. When we find ourselves in delusion, um, we find ourselves holding on to things, believing things to be true that aren't true, believing things to be permanent that aren't permanent, believing things to be beautiful that aren't beautiful, always lost in this, these misperceptions, this wrong view, and holding on to them, holding on to these views as a way, thinking that this is how we're going to solve the problem, the dilemma our unhappiness. And every now and then we have this revelation that Joseph talked about last night in his talk where we can just realize, I don't have to know. I don't have to have this strong opinion about things. I can actually let go and see what's really here. Most of the time we're caught in believing our version of reality in blaming others for our unhappiness or thinking it's just because we haven't got what we want that we're unhappy, or if we got this, we would be happy, um, that I'm right and you're wrong. All of these forms of delusion um, are what can cause us suffering. I had such a, 
clear example of this. It's just a small one, but this is what we do again and again and again. I was on a, a vacation in a place, a quite a lovely environment. The one thorn in it for me, and there always is, in, even in paradise, were these birds called francolins. And I'm an animal lover, I'm a bird lover, I love to watch birds, but I don't like these birds <laughs> because they're, they're little quail-like birds, they're introduced, they're not native to, to this place, um, and they run around in little packs and they have a to what to me, I'm very sensitive to sound, is a totally obnoxious cry that goes something like, why are you laughing, Carol? <laughs> On and then it gets louder and louder and louder. Was that it? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm copying to. Carol knows about me and Franklin's. That's why she's laughing. An issue. So I, I was in this place, and I'd gotten up early in the morning and done my yoga, and, and I was meditating. It was a beautiful morning, and the Franklin started up right outside my window with it. <laughs> And it wasn't until I found myself outside with my arms in the air, ready to pick up a stone to throw at them, that I kind of realized what had happened. And that's what happens in delusion, where we're you know, thinking we're doing something that will further our happiness, and we're actually engaging in all forms of aversion and confusion and aggression. So I very humbly went back to my meditation seat and then I had to sit with, you know, all these feelings of judgment and, and the an energy that had come up from running outside and just seeing how foolish I felt from relating in this way to what was just sound. Meditation ended, went on with my day. Next morning, sit down again, and it wasn't too long before the same thing. The Franklin started. And it was interesting, just the initial rise of energy, you know, that they shouldn't be doing this. I even have this thought about Franklin's, they shouldn't be here because they're introduced. They don't belong in that environment. It doesn't help. And just to say, it's just sound. And to feel how different it is to relate to that same experience. The noise was exactly the same. And here it is just sound. And then I could continue. But again and again, we find ourselves caught in this struggle because we project, we blame, we, we make rigid have rigid ideas about how things should and shouldn't be. This is just a small example of the myriad of ways we get caught in delusion. The next in the cycle, the second step, is called sankharas, uh, usually translated as volitional formations, and the image is usually a potter. And it's a great image, someone creating out of an inchoate mass of clay form. And again and again, what a potter does is create form again and again and again. And it's what we do through sankharas or volitional formations. Guy spoke about this the other night in his talk on the aggregates. The important thing in uh, this, this category is it includes basically everything that we think, say, or do with intention. It's really the realm of karma, intentional action. So it's a huge category. Um, that includes so much. But what we see in this category is 
the way we condition habits of mind and action. Well, actually, you could say thought, mind, mind, speech, and action. That through the repetition, through creating them again and again, they solidify. We create grooves or channels of behavior, and we so easily slip into them. This is the nature of sankharas, or volitional formations. They have this sense of solidifying the habits of mind and body that we fall into. The next in the links is consciousness, vijnana. Again, one of the aggregates that Guy spoke about. It's interesting that the usual depiction is a monkey. So even you know, in these traditional uh, understandings, they saw what we call monkey mind, just that, that, m that fleeting uh, awareness that's going from one thing to the other very quickly, always looking for some new sense impression. But again, in a, as vijnana, it, it's a much more limited sense than we usually uh, understand for this term consciousness. It is that just bare knowing. Um, that Guy talked about as one of the aggregates and that we've been emphasizing even in the meditation. Just this knowing faculty is vijnana or consciousness. The next in the links is nama rupa, often translated loosely as uh, name and form. And again, the image isn't clear. It's usually two people in a boat. And it's just this sense, nama rupa, mind and body, you know, in, in, inextricably linked together going along on life's journey together. Often uh, called mentality, materiality, nama being, being, being the mental qualities and rupa the physical form qualities. It has a little bit of a different understanding from how it is in the aggregates, but again, it's not so necessary for us to understand that for the purpose of the talk tonight, but it's just basically mind and body. The next link is the six sense spaces, and it's usually depicted as a house with six openings, often five windows and a door. Here it's just kind of five, uh, six squares. And often they have the monkey peering out from, from one of the windows. You can see him in there peering out. And again, the six sense doors are what we've been talking about of ear, eyes, taste, touch, smell, and the mind. Just the, the fact that there's a human body here that has these um, ways of sensing and experiencing the world. Now it starts to get a little interesting. Next in the links is contact. And usually the image, and again here it's not totally clear, is a man and woman embracing. It's just some strong contact, some strong arising of experience. So something happens at one of the six sense doors is basically what it's saying. And if I think Guy talked about this, we've talked about it before, the, the Buddhist understanding is there's these three things that come together. There's the sense organ, say the ear. There's the sense object, sound. And there's sense the ear consciousness. It's the knowing of the sound. There's these three discrete components to um, this impingement on the sense doors. And in our meditation, we can actually start to play with this, um, seeing if we can separate out the knowing from the actual organ of knowing. It's, it's a very subtle thing, but with practice and with 
intention, it, it is possible to actually separate this. You can know it just as simply as the recognition of the breath. You know, we know if you, if you stopped anyone on the street and say, are you breathing? They'd say, well, yes, you know, I'm breathing because I'm still alive, I'm breathing. What a difference it is when you actually tune into and recognize, know that you're breathing. It's just moving along that level of subtlety. So there's context. Something arises at one of the six sense doors. The next link is Vedana, or feeling tone. Again, we've talked about this, the quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that arises with every experience that we have. Now, it's really interesting that the image they choose to use for this is very strong. It's a person with an arrow through their eye. It's a very graphic image because of the importance, the power of Vedana. And you'll see as we go on why it's so important in this link. So it's that quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that's arisen with the contact at one of the six sense doors. The next link is that of craving. And the image is usually a person piling up their gold. This image is not so clear. I, 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 think, I presume it's something like that, but it's usually someone counting their money, and that's the craving. The Pali word is tanha, and it, as you may recognize it, it's the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is tanha. What's interesting is that at this link, things start, possibilities start to open up. Really, well, really with Vedana, but Vedana, because it arises with the object, we often don't have a choice. We usually don't have a choice about that. This is where choice starts to come into play. Most of the time, of course, we're just lost, and this cycle happens so quickly that there is no choice. But it's basically the beginning of the, the craving is the beginning of the slippery slope to suffering. That's the direction we're heading in. So it's really uh, looking at that, again, the ignorance, the delusion we have that getting what we want is going to bring us happiness. And it's only because we haven't got the right thing yet, the right experience, that we're not happy. And when we, but when we start to look through this lens, we see that craving and grasping and holding on just conditions more craving. That's all it does. And when we're looking for objects or experience to bring us happiness, we're always going to be caught on this cycle, this wheel of becoming. I often turn to the great philosopher, Calvin and Hobbes, or philosophers, I should say, <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes, to really uh, highlight the human experience. Calvin is the, the everyman, usually us, and Hobbes with his voice of wisdom. The Calvin and Hobbes, for those of you that don't know, it's a cartoon. Calvin is a little boy and Hobbes is his imaginary tiger. And Calvin, in the first image of the cartoon, says, getting is better than having. When you get something, it's new and exciting. When you have something, you take it for granted and it's boring. But Hobbes says, but everything you get turns into something that you have. Calvin says, that's why you always need to get new things. <laughs> Hobbes says, I feel like I'm in a stockholder's dream. Calvin says, waste and want, that's my motto. 
And it's funny when we put it like that, but you know, you can see how we're in that mode ourselves a lot. And it's what our whole economic world is based on. You know, businesses have to grow, have to get more, get bigger to be successful. It's not enough just to make enough money to pay the bills. It's, it's, it's this incessant need to get bigger and grow and gobble up other companies. This thing about always needing to become, needing to take, get bigger and grow and, and take this next step. This is what we do individually and we see it play out in the big economic systems of the world. What happens after craving? Craving has a bit of that sense of reaching towards. And, and, and grasping. But then we go on from there to clinging. So we've, we've moved one step more. We, we've grasped the thing and then the clinging. And, and it's a very visceral kind of movement. The usual image is actually the monkey again up in a tree with some fruit. Here they just have a person kind of picking fruit, but it's the next level of holding on. And if, it's, if, if craving isn't noticed, it's almost inevitable. We, we don't even tend to distinguish in our experience the difference between um, grasping and clinging. It's just so immediate. But it's just when we, it, it's that sequence when we start to give just a little more solidity to experience. You know, with wisdom, we know that it, the things are impermanent, they're going to change, it's not me, it's not mine. This is out of delusion. We try to hold on in whatever way that in whatever way that works in that relationship. Sometimes this is a moment-to-moment -moment thing, of you know the piece of chocolate cake or the second piece of chocolate cake. I should say, you know, the first one we've just craved it and grasped it, but the next one there's really that movement out to to getting more, and so it can be just as quick as that. Or these these movements of mind can be years long where we have some craving and clinging to a certain way of being in the world or some big thing like some new career change or getting a certain house in a certain neighborhood or you know, the long vacation that we've always dreamed of. So it's not just moment to moment. It can last over time. So it's just this spectrum that then leads to the next step, which is becoming. And you can see just a little more solidification. The image is usually a pregnant woman here the image is at about nine o'clock, and I think they've gone, they're a step earlier than the pregnant woman <laughs> is what I think is happening here. But there's basically that movement of life happening is what's going on there. And so it's a little bit of movement more towards a sense of self becoming, it's solidifying. And out of that naturally is birth. The pregnancy, the, this, this movement, it's, it's, it's solidifying, it's kind of gelling, it's that place where things are getting more solid and then boom, birth. This whole new being comes into existence. As I said, all of this is usually for us, could happen in a blink, could happen without us noticing, even if it goes more slowly. It, it's just so, we're so used to this process and we do it all the time. We're doing it over and over again in our day. Think of all the different selves you've created today, from the sleepy self that didn't want to get up in the morning, to the bright and awake self, to the good yogi, to the bad yogi, the hungry person, to the person who took too much at lunch and now is too full, or um, you know, the energetic person doing my yogi job really well, to, oh, maybe I didn't do it so well. 
all of those identifications of forms of self that we take up. And they can overlap. It's not like, you know, I'm one and then I'm the other. You know, we can be sitting here being the good yogi who's meditating very peacefully, but somehow floating out there is the bad daughter who's not going to be home for Thanksgiving or whatever it is. So there can be multiple processes of this. What's, what's central to it, though, is this distinct feeling of, of um, occupying this certain self, having an identity. Often, and, and usually, we're so, um, we're so habituated to doing this that we don't notice it. We just put it on like a piece of clothing that's very familiar, and that's how we respond to the world for the next successive moments, hours, days, weeks, as long as we hold on to that identity. We often only notice we've done that when it gets challenged in a certain way, when something rocks that identity. And I'll tell you, meditation is a great thing for doing that, have you noticed? Mm -hmm. Of just in the silence, in the spaciousness, seeing the energy we put into creating and holding on to all these different versions of self. and in the silence, the ego saying, no, no, don't let go, don't let go, hold on, because it's safe, it's familiar, it's something that we can enjoy. But inevitable, inevitably following along the heels of any birth is death, and that's the next image in the, in the, it's the next link in the chain, the next image on the wheel is actually, because these are very traditional um, images, it's a a, a, someone, a man carrying a corpse on his back to the burning guts, to the burial ground. This is the process of life. With every birth, there has to be death. And in this, it's usually called old age sickness and death. And it's basically a shorthand for suffering. As we create the sense of self, as we a birth into this new way of being, of identification, of I, me, mine, Somewhere, sooner or later, is old age sickness and death, shorthand suffering. Through the holding on, the not being willing to let go, the not wanting to change, the not wanting to grow, whatever way it might manifest, somehow suffering will come. Of course, we have all these strategies for dealing with suffering, for holding on to this sense of self because it's so comforting. Um, out in the world, we can't do it so much here, fortunately, all the distractions of entertainment and the media and, and frivolous activities that we can spend a lot of time with, um, people use intoxicants and drugs to, to push away this, this, to try and ward off any sense of discomfort or suffering, or all of the defense mechanisms, blame, uh, resistance, denial. It's not my fault, it's their fault. It shouldn't be this way, it's not right. This is wrong. So here we are caught in delusion about our suffering. So the cycle begins again through the very resistance to the suffering itself. Is in that resistance are the seeds to the delusion that will keep us going around and around in this cycle of suffering, ignorance, and on to the next birth. So that was a very quick whiz through the, 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 the steps and uh, the cycle. I want to talk now more about how it actually works and to try and simplify it a little. 
And for that, it's more helpful to look at the other um, handout that I gave with the, the simple wheel at the center. There are different views of this teaching. The traditional view that the Buddha usually spoke about in the suttas is the three lifetime model, where um, the first two links of ignorance and volitional formations are the past life, and the links to the three through ten, consciousness through becoming, this is the outer circle, are this life, and then we get birthed into the next life and it begins again. And all, a lot of the teachings on karma are based on this understanding. And it's not, of course, just three lifetimes. This is going on in the Buddhist uh, worldview over and over again. And it, you know, it's a helpful way of looking at how we come into this world with certain tendencies and why you know, things unfold in the way they do. There's another model um, that is just a one lifetime model. That we're born into this world and this cycle starts and then it ends in death. The most helpful model that I think is, uh, that I use and why I find this teaching helpful is what you could call the moment-to-moment -moment model or the, 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 the um, individual lifetime model where we just see that this process is going on all the time, that there are cycles happening right now in this moment. There are larger cycles that we're caught in that began years ago and we're still in the process of. And then there are all one, different sizes in between. So it's like all of these little wheels spinning and we're at the center going in and out of awareness of these different cycles, different processes of becoming birth and death. And so it's a very um, mobile, it's very, it, it's very fluid, it's, it's not static. It's Im important not to think of this as something that's very rigid. Another important thing to get about dependent origination is that it's a conditioning, it's a conditioned model. It's not a causal model. I, when I first heard this teaching, why it didn't make sense is I thought it was like uh, the, the, a clock ticking, you know, it was just ignorance caused uh, volitional formations and that caused consciousness and it was kind of like going around like this. And it just didn't make sense to me. And it doesn't make sense to view it like that. It's actually much more um, uh, different time scales going. Some can be immediate, some can be longer term, and they all affect each other. So what I mean by um, conditioning rather than causal, it's a simple example. A causal, an example of something causing someone else is if I hit the bell, it will make a sound. If I don't hit the bell, it won't make a sound. But if I hit it, that's a causal effect. Hitting the bell makes the sound. Now that's interesting on one level, but what's more interesting is the conditioned nature of this experience. And that has to do with how I hit the bell and then how you receive it. So if I hit the bell very lightly, it makes a different kind of sound. And depending on how you receive that, you will receive it differently depending on your sankharas, your conditioned responses. It's quite pleasant 
usually that very soft sound. But if you're a little hard of hearing and you're waiting to hear the bell at the end of the sitting, you could get quite annoyed that I didn't hit the bell loud enough that you could hear it. So the same thing can have different responses. We've talked about this. If I were to hit the bell really hard, I'm sure you'll all have different conditioned responses of annoyance or shock or fright or whatever. That's the difference between just this very simple causal nature, hitting the bell makes a sound, to the, the way I hit the bell and the way it impacts you. That's a conditioned response or conditioned nature. So these all influence each other. So they're determining but not necessary factors for each next link. The way Paiuto says it is, you can think of it when ignorance is like this, volitional formations are like that, and so on through the rest of the cycle. When this link is like this, that link is like that. It's not when this link arises, it causes this link to arise. When this link is like this, this one is like this. There's a, an interesting book, uh, a Vipassana practitioner wrote uh, called The Twelve Steps on the Buddha's Path, where she, uh, she's a recovering alcoholic, and she talks about how her practice of meditation and her understanding of the Buddha's teachings really helped her to put the Twelve Steps into practice and actually um, make her recovery more possible, more possible, more um, deep. And she was influenced a lot by the teaching on dependent origination. The book is actually called 12 Steps on the Buddha's Path, so it's interesting. It's a 12-step program and the 12 links. So here's how she puts them together. She says, finally, when I seriously studied the Buddha's teachings, the, answers became, the answer became obvious. The theory of dependent origination plainly explains why I drank myself into physical addiction and mental obsession even as I denied that I had a problem, even as I kept trying unsuccessfully to stop drinking. So she goes through the 12 steps. I never intended to get drunk in social situations, that's ignorance, but I thought I could just have a few drinks and have a good time, mental formations. I imagined how much fun I would have, consciousness, when someone invited me to a party. I, material form, so you can tr follow this on the links, would go to a party. I would see, sense gate, that everyone was drinking and having a good time. Someone would hand me a drink and I'd take the first sip. That's the contact, the event. A pleasant feeling would envelop me, Vedana. I would want more of that feeling, more to drink, craving. I would have one drink after another, clinging, until I was drunk, becoming. So more solidification, throwing up in a blackout and humiliate, humiliating myself. I would get sober and swear to never let that kind of behavior happen again, but I would go to another party, rebirth, as soon as there was an opportunity. The whole cycle of drunkenness would play out again, perhaps this time with an automobile accident or an ended friendship. The realization that I had done it again made me despair, dukkha. So that's just one person's, you know, looking at how, again, it wasn't moment to moment. This was over long periods of time. She played out this cycle. But I think we can simplify it even more. And that's what I've drawn on the inside of that chart, where I really see there are actually just five 
clumps of things happening. You can really simplify it. Ignorance and volitional formations are the past causes. They've happened. In this moment, we can't change them. They're our base, the basic forms of delusion that we're living out of and the habit patterns, the karmic formations that we've acted on and solidified out of that ignorance in the past. The next set of links, consciousness, mind and body, nama rupa and the six sense bases, are basically here we are a human being. We're awake, we have a mind, we have a body. That's all you need to know about that. The next thing is contact. And again, mostly, mostly outside our control. Something arises, some event happens at one of the six sense doors. The response is this very quick flow that can happen from Vedana to craving to clinging. If we don't notice Vedana, this is what happens. And usually it's just conditions. It's a knee-jerk response. You hear the bell and either you like it or you don't like it, depending on where you are in your sitting, what, what's been going on prior to that experience. Most of the time it's just a slippery slope and we're right there. And out of that taking up of whatever it is, we take birth as someone who's irritated or happy or depressed or enlightened or whatever it might be. And then we're still in that cycle because anytime we take up a sense of self, inherent in that is an ending to that sense of self. And as I said, we can be on multiple cycles at the same time of being, you know, happy about something but a nagging worry about something else in the background or, you know, big cycles of seeing a whole arc of, you know, this is the beginning of my meditation trajectory and it's just one retreat after another, enlightenment or bust kind of mentality. And then the self that's got an aching knee and hates meditating. And they can both be coexisting. But we can play out both of them and just slip really easily from one to the other. So how is it helpful to see this? How is it helpful to look at our process in this way? Christina Feldman, who does some teaching, a lot of teaching on dependent origination, says this, to me, the significance of this whole description is that if we understand the way our world is created, we also then become conscious participants in that creation. Basically, she's saying what we've said again and again, we see we have a choice. That yes, there are these places where the wheel is very fast and there's not a lot of choice, but there are places where there are choices. And it's up to us to see where that possibility is. Buddhadasa actually calls this the radiant wheel because of its potential for freeing it for finding freedom. It's also called the wheel of understanding or the wheel of awakening. So it's not just a depiction of how we suffer. It's also a depiction of the possibility of waking up. So you can see how it's really the first seven links can happen very quickly. You know, we're a human being or awake. All of that, boom, is just there in our experience. But when we get to Vedana, to feeling tone, this is a crucial point that the Buddha said, we can break this chain of dependent origination. It's why we encourage you to use it as a meditation object. If we can just note 
feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, the possibility exists of not immediately going into craving or into aversion or into delusion. Nyanaponikatera, a very wise German monk, says that yet Vedana by itself in its primary state is quite neutral when it registers the impact of an object as pleasant, unpleasant or indifferent. There's actually a little bit of equanimity right at that very moment of recognition of the Vedana. This is a very subtle point, but incredibly important. In that recognition, we're, we're coming into close contact with the truth of things with as little um, projection, filtering as we can bring to it. Yes, our conditioned nature might cause us to know it as pleasant or unpleasant, but knowing that is actually um, amazingly important. There is then the possibility of not being on that slippery slope where we immediately go into aversion. I mean, I know for myself, if I'm, my knee is aching, some difficulty while I'm meditating, and I can struggle a little, I'm knowing it, it's there, it's aching, it's hot, but if I have the wherewithal to just say, oh, it's unpleasant, the mind just releases a little and says, oh, right, that's why I don't like it. <laughs> and I have the capacity to be with it a little more directly through just that knowing if it's unpleasant. And the same with, you know, a mouthful of goddess cake. Oh, it's pleasant. That's why I want another piece. It can just break that cycle that otherwise we're endlessly on. So the challenge of this, obviously, is noticing this. And often, again, when I heard this teaching in the beginning, I thought that was the only chance I had. If I didn't notice it there and immediately, I might as well give up and just you know, keep cranking this cycle out because I'd gone to hell in a handbasket down there in the hell realms immediately. What's important is we wake up wherever we notice we're suffering. And if this teaching is helpful to you and you can notice it's you're in craving or you're in clinging or you're creating a sense of self and it's solidifying, anywhere you notice it, you can wake up. This is what's so important about this teaching. Even if we're already in suffering, we can break this cycle. Even if we're in craving, through the recognition of the cyclical nature, of the, the fact that feeding the craving will only bring us more suffering, really just bringing the wisdom in. Once someone I was talking to on this retreat had a great revelation about this very process going on, not putting it in these terms, but this is actually what was happening. She'd been caught in a huge amount of obsessive thinking and thought that the way to be mindful of it was just to be aware of it and to be aware of all of the unpleasant emotions and the pleasant ones, the fantasy, the desire, the shame, the blame, the, the energy that was just put into perpetuating these ongoing obsessive thoughts. And the revelation came that she didn't have to keep doing that, that she could actually break that cycle. And it was just so great to see that possibility. And in that, there was joy and freedom just through realizing she didn't have to take up that self that was a self that was obsessed. 
that was a self that was suffering, that the self that was totally invested in supporting these fantasies and could take steps. And sometimes what we do is actually prevent the contact. We recognize that if we go to a certain place or do a certain thing, act in a certain way, we'll condition these habitual these conditioned patterns will arise again. So we can actually go through a different door, not turn a different direction. So the contact doesn't even happen. There's that possibility too. But the main thing is just to wake up wherever we are and recognize that it's possible to break this cycle. The Buddha, when he talked about breaking the cycle as well as breaking it as Advaidna, would talk about the cessation cycle. And then he would say, if ignorance ceases, volitional formations cease. Volitional formations cease, consciousness ceases. And he would go through the whole cycle just saying that if you break it anywhere, if one of them ceases like a pack of cards, the rest of them fall down. Ajahn Sumedho, in talking about this, says that if you start with avidya, if you start with ignorance, you'll always end up with suffering. He says, I encourage you to not start from a vidya, but to start from awareness, vidya, and wisdom, panya. Be that wisdom itself, rather than a person who isn't wise trying to become wise. As long as you hold on to the view that I'm not wise yet, but I hope to become wise, you'll end up with grief, sorrow, despair and anguish. It's that direct. It's learning to trust in being wisdom now, being awake, even though you may feel emotionally inadequate, doubtful or uncertain, frightened or terrified of it. So he's saying instead of taking birth as a person who's not wise, who's lost or foolish, find that place of wisdom and let our experience come out of that without having to have anything be any different. It's really a radical way of looking at this teaching and this experience, that the wisdom is there if we get in touch directly with what's happening here and now. And then when ignorance is no longer a problem, sankharas are no longer a problem. It doesn't mean we don't exist. It means we just don't get caught again and again in this cycle. So we begin wherever we notice that we're suffering, wherever we notice we're holding on to I, me, or mine. There's a chance to break this cycle. It's possible. It's, it's, it's doable. As Ajahn Chah said, there's the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So we really need to question. We need to look directly at our experience. When there's no ignorant, when there's no wisdom, we're caught in duality, separation, holding on, trying to make things permanent in the grip of me and mine. If we can notice that movement, that movement of holding on, that solidifying, that slippery slope, we can actually preempt this whole cycle and go in a different direction. Now, I know this is not easy. We've conditioned millions of these cycles, and so it's very easy for us to keep churning out new ones. 
but any time we're willing to question or challenge our beliefs, our assumptions, and come more and more directly in contact with our experience as it is, there's this possibility of ending this cycle of birth and death and suffering and actually waking up here and now into a self that's not limited by our past conditioning, but actually has enormous possibility and enormous freedom. I'll just finish with the words of the Buddha. For some people, contact, the point where sense plus object meet is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand their sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize the total calm. The calm comes from the end of grasping. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.